0: Welcome to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This podcast is about the practice of honing our craft as educators. Life is an apprenticeship, and we want to build a guild of educators where we can all come together, learn from each other, rant with each other, and center our praxis and our pedagogy so we can become better in our craft. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast, episode 35, The Great Canadian Training Gap. That's right. Chad, Sally, and myself sit down and we talk about an article that came across our desks about the Great Canadian Training Gap. And the focus of the article was comparing the Canadian apprenticeship system with the European apprenticeship system, specifically the German apprenticeship system. A lot of good stuff in this episode as always. And I think you'll find an interesting perspective from Sally because she did her apprenticeship in the UK. So she brings a wealth of experience, knowledge, background to this specific topic. I think you're going to enjoy this one. This is awesome. And we'll catch you on the other side. Put it in our, we'll go three two one. Hey everybody, welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. As uh Mikey aka Chad would say P three P cubed. P cubed. <laughs> Sorry, P3. oh yeah. P cubed. <laughs> P cubed. Um and uh, so glad to have you with us uh today. This is episode
1: thirty-five and uh thirty-five episodes, you guys. That's crazy. This good. This is excellent. We're getting some Yeah, but you're pumping through like man, i c I don't know how you have the bandwidth to do all the interviews. Well, I mean, they're, they're great people and
0: it works that you're on holidays for, you know, a month.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: mm-hmm. that, that works. And it, and it helps that I'm working from home and zoom is a good thing. And, uh, you know, cause then we don't have to meet face to face and there's no, there's no travel restrictions or anything like that. So it's all good that way. But yeah, I love it. I love it. It's kind of like you, Chad, pumping all this stuff on YouTube, sit down with your studio action and off you go. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, you get a good workflow going. I guess that's it's all about the organization. Yes, it is.
2: I, I suddenly feel very unproductive here. Like, what, 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 hang on, what is it I do? What come on, Sally,
0: come on! Coming from the up. person who just finished her doctorate. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay. the next the next year should be all dedicated to you drinking IPA. That's
2: what oh, yeah. <laughs> well I'm doing a good job. I, yes, no. yes. Apparently so.
0: Yes. Apparently so. Yes. yes. The good news is is that uh, later on in uh, in our podcasting life we'll be hooking up with uh, Coast Mountain College and doing a Pines and pedagogy.
2: Oh, perfect. We've been waiting for this day. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's
0: mm-hmm. uh, that's a big red circle on my calendar as of yet <laughs> it hasn't been solidified but it's uh, it's going to happen. So all of you listening, be careful because, uh, this will not be your regular podcast, the pipes of pedagogy. <laughs> uh, we've got some, uh, excellent guests also coming up th- through the, through the pipe. We've got uh, Lucy Griffiths coming from VCC. And, uh, that's going to be a hoot. Lucy. Lucy. Yep. She's, she's excited and a little nervous, but, uh, we'll take good care of her. Uh-huh. I promised her we'll, we'll be nice <laughs> and we'll go, we'll go gentle. And, uh, and then Scott Dixon has, uh, has agreed and uh, chatted with him on the phone and, uh, yeah. I'm looking, forward, I'm looking forward to those too. but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, good. So for those
2: Life of us, never the same after a conversation with Scott Dixon.
1: Okay. Yeah, why, he's not like, putting any pressure like, on the poor. poor <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Although <laughs> I, I did,
0: impression. I did, I did, I did warn him that, uh, most of our guests come back for seconds. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, we only do an hour, but you know, things always seem to creep over an hour, but, uh, so he's good with that. We're in, he's good to go. So, uh, yeah, and, and, and if we follow the, uh, the content calendar like a, like a nerd that I am, we'll, uh, we'll be listening to Lucy and Scott in a couple weeks, everybody. So uh, buckle up. It'll be a good one. All right. So today's topic, we want to we talk a little bit about an article that came
1: across our desks here. hmm What'd you think? I'm just calling the article up right now. Again,
2: <laughs> I've got it right here. I've been up since five thirty doing my homework, which, oh, nice. <laughs> which nice. means I love it. Yeah. Four and a half hours sleep. That that was a treat last night.
0: Oh. Huh, that's good. So
2: we've got the great Canadian training gap.
0: Yeah. And, um, I, it, it captured my attention because you, you guys know that I've been talking about, um, the apathy gap for a long time. And, uh, the article does touch on that a tiny bit and maybe, maybe I'll bring that up once we get into it. But um, yeah. what Overall thoughts uh, before we uh, tie into the the meat of it, what do you think?
1: I was surprised actually that the numbers are so low, Yeah, especially in Canada. I mean, also being a trades educator, I, I don't know. I, I guess I live in this little bubble where I think that everything we do is sunshine and unicorns and that everything we, <laughs> if I have a student come into the system, that they're going to go out <laughs> of the system, a better person. Well, you we a unicorn yourself, everywhere you go, there is a unicorn, right? So. Yeah, that's right. Yes. You see nothing about unicorns. Like when it's you awkward. buy that white car and you see nothing but white cars. <laughs>
2: that's so <right>. true.
1: <laughs> but yeah, 10% completion rate, that's, that's, yeah. uh, Mike, Mike Smith would say that's embarrassing. Mike, Mike Smith <laughs> would say that. Yes,
0: he would. Um, yeah. And interesting because I pulled up some other information from the Canadian Apprenticeship Forum, but Sally, what did you think of the article?
2: Well, yeah, I'd say I was quite surprised as well. Um, I, I think that as I read through it, I mean, I, there were certain areas in this article that I felt were a little bit vague. Let's say that straight off the bat, because, you know, yeah, there weren't just the stats behind it that I would like to have seen. And of course, like Tim, you went a bit further and actually fact checked it, which I, you know, I really appreciate. But I think there's some really good. Um, issues came forward in this article. And it was great to see so many of these issues that I think we've touched on in our conversations together, you know, around apprenticeship, around trades. And somebody has brought it together all very nicely in this, you know, relatively short article. And I think that they were, you know, they were definitely, definitely brought out the key points that we probably should be you know reviewing consistently reviewing i think no not yeah yes yeah definitely these are not these are not one time hit issues and um yeah the relatively low participation rates and low completion rates yeah i think it did surprise me um and, and when we're ready i'll hop into my thoughts around um you know, I think there's various players there. there. That's a huge stakeholder issue of why we see such low um, completion rates.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a pretty complex system, right? I mean, not not that any apprenticeship system isn't complex, but um, it's it's a it's a pretty complex. And it came up a couple times that they mentioned this. Um, I, I'm, I don't want to steal the thunder from the article, but um, I, I did appreciate. Uh, at the beginning of it, where it said that, that the Canadian apprenticeship system is a, quite a different story from its counterparts that it was um, comparing it to. And, and um, I've, I've done some reading on apprenticeship, Sally, I'm sure, same with you, Chad, slash Mike, that you've done some reading on apprenticeship around the world, specifically in Europe, because obviously they've been doing it, you know, longer than we have. Um, and, you know, even with, you know, the, the establishment of guilds back in the late uh, Middle Ages, um early enlightenment period and and just and just the power and control that the guilds had in in the uh, the European uh, landscape for so long Uh, and then that model never really went away in the sense of passing information down from the master to the apprentice and and we we even look at what we're doing today in the midst of a covid crisis and that's still happening it's 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 a different modality that's for sure. But here we are still teaching apprentices information that that is in a is in a bound system, like we call it student curriculum or student resources, and then we mix it with our own experience. And here we are disseminating experience and knowledge to to an apprentice, um, although it's not on the job a hundred percent. Here they are coming to us to an institution for twenty percent of their of their time. But I'm 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 curious if Sally or Chad, if you know some of the differences between specifically the, the the German system and the Canadian system. And Sally, I mean, being from, from England, you, you might have some firsthand information on some differences yeah, there.
2: Yeah. But in, interestingly enough, my firsthand information came from a session I attended at BCIT, which was the first day I met both of you in person. Oh, <laughs> So I had been to a session earlier that day and there was a visiting scholar there from Germany and his area of uh, you know his research was apprenticeship and the trades so hmm. he was visiting the electrical department Chad with one of your colleagues whose name escapes me right oh,
0: now Oh, I remember that
2: yes yeah. yeah yeah and I found it absolutely fascinating what I learned from that session because even though I'd read up on this, you know, German uh, the German apprenticeship system, which is really always held in such high regard around the world, I was unable to really sort of deconstruct it and compare and contrast it until the day that I actually met this this, this scholar in person and was able to ask the questions so that I could really build um, the picture of how the differences that exist there and The one big thing is is that when apprentices continue uh, their education, it's not that they only continue the trade. They actually continue their academic education as well. So their system is quite different where the level of respect for their apprentices is significantly different than what we see um, in other countries. And I think this is true. Um, somewhat true as well in Australia that this this stigma towards the trades isn't quite as hefty as what even though you know we we don't I don't think we wear that that there's a stigma towards the trades so I think we've you know risen above that and and don't need to buy into it but we do know it exists like in the literature it's clearly there that there's um you know Parental resistance towards um, students going into trades. I mean, we've had we've had people come to our open evenings, and the first thing that the parents says is, you know, my daughter's really smart. There's no reason why she would go into a trade, or my son's really a smart guy. Like, why would he choose a trade? Because he wants to. Because he's interested. So those barriers, I don't think they are as prominent in germany and i think it is because they haven't separated their academic vocational they haven't reinforced that divide so you're going into an apprenticeship there's funding as well that was the other thing that we we got to learn about on that day that that to take an apprenticeship means you're well supported by the government it's well-funded and you continue, as I say, when you come back to school, you're continuing your academic education and they are separated. You, you're you doing your, you know, your trade over here in this section, but, and then you go to a different section. So they haven't brought them together in the same classroom, but I think it's that they recognize the intelligence of this person as an apprentice that we're not going to deprive them from continuing their academic education as well. Whereas of course, you know, in our system, what we see is that it's one or the other.
0: Yeah. And that's a really good point. And, and there's a couple of things, because couple of things I want to add to that, when I first started reading it, we come across this word of or this phrase participation rates. Right. And it's like, what does that even mean? Like, can you define that for me? Like, I know what participation means, right? I, I get that. But, you know, are they delineating the idea of people who register for apprenticeships um, and then people who actually participate in those registrations uh, all the way through to completion? I'm, I'm not sure if there's a correlation there, if they're, if they're just talking about something different, but you know, in, in, in my experience, when I, when I first, Got into the trade. Like when I was first thinking about going into trades, I did some homework and and looked at the trend of trades. And you know, I grew up in a blue collar home. Both my parents were tradespeople, so I knew what it was like to work as a tradesperson. But I found it interesting that when and this is uh, two and a half decades ago, is it that long ago? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, two and a half decades ago, they were they at that point they were saying you know, in 10 years, there's going to be a complete shortage of, of tradespeople uh, because everyone's going to retire out. And I'm like, okay, that that's good news. And then I looked at the the top three, four trades that had the most impact for retirement. And then I whittled, whittled it down and, and didn't want to go into electrical because I'm not smart enough for, it was too dangerous. And because, I mean, I saw what my dad had to deal with and I'm like, yeah, no, sorry, don't want to do that. Um, and then steam fitter, pipe fitter didn't want to do that because it's all out of town work. And you know, I had a family, didn't want to do that. Um, and carpenter, I, I I'd already framed houses for five years and I really wasn't interested and, and quite honestly, didn't know the scope of carpentry as, as, as well as I should have. Um, so I fell into plumbing, honestly, like it was just, that was just, it was by default. That was my last one. Um, mind you, the, the wait you list could to have get been into a like,
2: hairdresser, Tim. I could
0: yeah, have, I could have. Yes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, avoided that one for some reason. I'm not, <laughs> not sure why, but uh, I'll have to That's dig up my notes again. On that one. Yes, <laughs> but barriers. Barriers, yeah. 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 Can you imagine me walking into a salon going, okay, here we go. Where's my spot?
2: <laughs> yeah, move away. <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't think I have enough tattoos either to work in a salon as a, as a guy. But uh, anyway, all that said, um, the participation rate thing stuck out to me too. Um, and I have done some reading about the and you brought it up, uh, Sally. The perception bias of trades in Europe, and I was shocked because this long history of trades being in England, especially, and this was they were looking at the English system specifically. Mm-hmm. And and I thought to myself, so you know, high school grads or or a little bit, a couple of grades or lower than that, they're they're still thinking of trades as a second class option, like. And I yeah. thought, what? Like you guys are steeped in the history of trades. Mm -hmm. Like some trades began their guild experience and existence in England. Like, like, like for instance, plumbers, they first became a guild member in England. Like it's like, for me, it just, it just blew me up, blew me away. And then, um, I know that with Germany, the German system is, is looked at as, you know, the pinnacle, but I'm, I'm wondering like, like, why like is, is it because they i have this i have this image in my head of two lines of students or, or kids when they're like nine years old and they're like okay you're gonna do this test and
2: you've got and it. it. sorry <laughs> you've got it oh is that they're, it they're 11 actually
0: okay yeah. see and, right. and i wonder if that's if that's it right and if it's built into the fabric and i'm and i can't remember if germany is a socialist um country or not it would make sense that if if they're doing that it would fit into that socialist model rather than a capitalist model uh, like we see in Canada for instance um, because if it's a socialist model then they're gonna look at the whole framework of of, of their of their infrastructure for their country and they're gonna say okay we, we don't want to have too many of this we want to make sure it's balanced and 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 they, they're not going to leave it up to you know, post-secondary to make that distinction for them like we see here in 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 canada especially where you know pe- people go through the k-12 to system and then they're filtered it's almost like they're filtered at grade 12 as to where they're going to go post-secondary community college or some kind of vocational training
2: yeah i think there's either or so you know in in the uk now there's only two counties as i understand it that still have the the That still um, have the 11 plus exam. So the 11 plus exam is the one that you take at the age of 11, and it determines whether you're going into a grammar school, which is your academic um, pathway into university, or if you're going into, um, they used to call them secondary schools, but I think that's a little bit harsh. That's, That's where I went off to the secondary school school. Um, Because at the time when I was in the UK, like only 9% of the children actually passed this exam. And it's all yeah, and it's it's marked on a bell curve. So depending on which geographical area you were in and the density of that population or the wealth of that particular area, they may have more seats available in their grammar school. So it wasn't a you know it wasn't a set pass mark, it was a floating pass mark. Anyway (laughs) <laughs> Nine that doesn't sound
0: biased at all.
2: No, not at all. And <laughs> oh. of course, it was a real, you know, it's that whole means through curriculum of social stratification. That's what they're doing. So I think even though that's been reshaped now, and like I say, that only actually exists in two counties in the country. But as a society, they still buy into that. The people, the history is there. And the housing market in those two counties is the most expensive in the whole of the country because people move to that area so that their child can take the 11 plus. They have their children tutored. There's incredible amount of tutoring goes on before they see these exams so that they can get this free seat for their child at a grammar school, which is equivalent to a private school. So that divide still exists there, I think, in the framework of um, you know, the mindset um, around that, which as I understand it, the way that Germany has structured it is they've, they have. They've probably done the closest thing we've seen globally to actually, whether they've done this as a solution to the academic vocational divide, or whether it didn't exist there, I don't
0: know.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the big issue, I think, if we bring it back to Canada, is we do have this, this divide. And I don't know, I mean, the divide is there. I, when I was in school, like, I was just thinking the other day, my daughter loves musicals. So, of course, we threw on Greece, right? And <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the whole misogynistic tendencies behind that movie alone are problematic. But <laughs> when you look at like Danny Zuko is trying to find his path and then he's, he's quote unquote dumb. So what did they do? They put him in shop where he builds grease lightning, right? He always, and that was kind of the way we were brought up or the book, the outsiders, right? You've got the greases and the socias and the greases were the guys that worked on their cars and they were dumb and didn't do well in academics. So this is kind of the culture that we're in pushes that. And so then we've got our students who think that way as well. And they, you know, if you don't, If you're not good at school, you're not good at studying, you're not good at learning, then you go into trades. Well, then you get the students that are like they're mechanically inclined. So those ones do well in trade school because that's where they really do want to be. But then you also get that that type of student who doesn't really, they're kind of lost right now and they don't know where they want to go. And they think that this is just going to be easy. And I have so many of those students show up and then they're blown away with the rigor that's involved because trade school or trades education, it's not for people who can't do the work right it's not just an easy out and for some reason this academic vocational education divide is academics is hard and rigorous and vocational is just easy and you know you just you do some stupid dumb math and then you go to work and but it's not and any trade you're in it's got there's a lot of stuff that you have to know i mean to get into electrical you have to have physics 12 and math 12 in bc to, to get in there right so but that that's the thing is we've got this the stereotype of what trades education is and it's not that we need to somehow, I don't know how, but we need to let people know that it is and it's, it's a parallel path to academics. It's not a lesser path. It's not for people who don't want to do work because it's just as hard, if not more in some aspects. Oh, I think it's harder. It's harder on your
0: body. It's harder on your mind. I mean, it's in some cases like Sally, you owned your own business. You were, you were an entrepreneur at, at the same time you were a tradesperson. And how many trades people do we know that are in that boat? Not not just in hairstyling, but in almost every almost in every trade, there's there's some aspect of entrepreneurship or ownership when it comes to this.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you know I think that we've got a systematic problem around um, you know how we how we perceive trades. Just you know, building what you said there, Chad, and I think electrical is. I don't think electrical falls quite into this this range because we all know that we cannot play around with the electrics in our house. We all see <laughs> things electrical that are way too complex for us yeah. to touch. Yeah. But also, you're recognised that a red seal is a requirement. Look at your entry requirements, like you're saying physics twelve. You know, so this is a well respected trade. But I think where it starts to fall apart is. When we, you know, just going back to this article and the low completion rates, well, when you work in a province where it's not required for you to complete Mm -hmm. your apprenticeship. So, for example, you'll go to a construction site. These are the homes that we live in. And how many of those carpenters on site are red seal? Well, I think the standard is that you need to have one red seal person on site. Well, why do we not have everybody with a red seal on site? What, why is this? So I think this is where, when we look, like if there's a stigma that exists here, it's because we're not, you know, the government of BC, I think in 2003, 2004, deregulated so many of these trades. And at that time, it's, it is devaluing the Mm -hmm. knowledge and the skills of these tradespeople. So these stigmas I, I think will continue until we actually recognize those qualifications. We don't allow other people that, I mean, to think that your home can be constructed by people that are not qualified and you just live in there quite, you know, quite comfortably. And yet, you know, you can't go to a massage therapist for an hour and go to a massage therapist that is that doesn't have the recognized credential. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Why did they deregulate some of those trades? I don't understand. I never understood that.
2: Well, I think it was, I I think the bottom line of it is comes back to the almighty dollar, because if you're regulating a trade, then you have so many um, steps along the way. So I think they just actually looked at certain trades and said, hang on, we don't need to regulate this. There must be, I mean, if we could, (laughs) if we have the time to do this, really look into the savings that the, the government made from deregulating those trades. Um, And then at the same time, you know, we've got harmonization sweeping across the country now. So I think there's a five-year plan to harmonize all these trades um, across Canada, which looks really positive. You know, this is a good thing that we're doing here. And yet when you go into the individual provinces, it's like, yes, we are harmonizing, and yet we're not regulated within our province. So we will get a red seal, but in actual fact, nobody's ever going to say you have to have a red seal to work here. But if we hop over into Alberta, then you do. So why is that? You know, I think those things are, uh, I think they're at the roots of this ongoing, you know, ongoing uh, barrier towards trade.
0: Yeah. And like I was saying before, it's, I think it's part of the complexity too, of, of the system in the sense that you, you have, you have the red seal, which is a national certification. Um, and it's, and it's really just an endorsement. It's not your CFQ.
1: No. Right. You it's get really your CFQ right before Sorry. your red seal. Your, your CFQ comes when you're past your schooling, right? When you,
0: when you've completed your apprenticeship. Yeah. And, and so in, in some provinces, there's actually two or three exams to get through the hoops. Right. So in Alberta, for instance, they have to write a CEQ exam for the province of Alberta before they write their red seal. As in BC, that's not that's not the case. They just finish their level four and go and write their red seal. So the, even the system that way is is skewed. And when we look at when we look at the federal approach to to education, it's just here's a bunch of money and you guys take care of how you're going to manage your educational uh, processes and, and how you address your educational needs. And I'm wondering if, in some European countries, if it's not different, if it's if the if the federal government in Germany—and again, I'm speaking out of ignorance because I haven't done this much background checking and and, and research—but I'm I'm just wondering if there's more input with the money that they give to individual provinces or states within the larger country, saying, "Okay, here's this money, but you need to make sure you do this, 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 and this," rather than just "Here's a bunch and see you later." Um, the the interesting thing to me is in one of the paragraphs it says here, so it could be argued that many Germans are being denied opportunities to reach their full educational potential by early selection into specific occupations. And I'm like, measured by whom? So they're being denied, they're being denied educational opportunities by, by whom? Like that doesn't make sense to me. Um, And you know, it's like, it's like they're saying, well, you know, the German system is just so much better, but here we are talking or reading about, you know, the fact that people's educational opportunities are being stunted.
2: Yeah, and, and that, that didn't make sense to me either, Tim, just because of that conversation that, that I mentioned earlier um, with the, the scholar from Germany, because he was very clear about this continuous pathway that, you know, goes on in the academic as well. And, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, that is an argument that we make here when we narrow somebody's curriculum based on their, specifically to their occupation, we could argue. I mean, I I personally did argue that um, in the UK did deprive me of a full education by, you know, at the age of 11 by, you know, just streaming me off with the other one, 91%. They deliberately did that and they knew that they were doing that. But, um, yeah, I question that around the... Um, the the german system around the whole idea that you know these uh if you go into a trade you've been deprived of this reaching your full potential academically but then we also need to compare that what that means here in bc when we know at thompson rivers and at viu if you have a red seal that is um equivalent to the first two years of a an undergrad degree. So we're recognizing this. And I think this is the interesting thing. On one hand, you know we're recognizing this. We're, we're, the universities are saying, yes, you have, a, you have your Red Seal endorsement. You've got that industry experience. You have this equivalency of 60 credits. Now you can come in and do a general degree, two years, and you will have your degree. So this is really good. They're also, the government's also got all of these grants in place for completion rates around apprenticeship. So you complete your apprentice apprenticeship. I think you can access up to $4,000 in grants. I'm pretty sure that's, that's what it is. And yet when we step out of that environment and into industry, industry doesn't know about these grants and industry is willing to hire you without that credential. So I think we've got a stakeholder problem here. I think there's so many um, disjoint, yeah, disjointed parts to the whole apprenticeship system.
0: Yeah, you're right. And, and BCIT has been offering that diploma track for a long time now, and at least for 10, 10 years, because it was in place when I, when I first started um, at, at the institution that, that I'm from. <laughs> same one as that same one. one as same one as mike um but uh, <laughs>
2: yeah, mikey smith <laughs> but here's
0: here's the thing with that though right uh one how much is it how much is that pathway uh promoted highlighted within trades itself right um and and how many actually take it that's that's a that's a bigger question to dig into um because quite frankly i, I know that there's trades people that that want to go into business for themselves. They, they want to learn how to do things. And Chad, you've been, you've been seeing this trend now because you do your app to CEO course, which is a fantastic course. And I think every tradesperson person should take it regardless of whether they're going to be an owner or not. Um, and that's not just pumping your tires. It's it's because it's, I think it's fundamental to, to how we look at our trades environment for crying out loud. Um, but there's, there's not a lot of crossover, right? Very, very few crossover. And um, I think they kind of nail that head a tiny bit when they talk about the information gap um, and the bias within the stakeholders. And, you know, we come across the the statement, and, and this is not new to us, that apprentices don't want to leave because they don't want to go on EI. Um, and then the employers say, well, I don't want you to leave either because we're busy and I I, I don't really want to go six, eight, ten weeks without you being here. So you know what? How about I just pay you the raise and you stay? And 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 in doing that, they're undercutting the system, right? And and they're not realizing that they're actually hurting their own business as well as the as hurting the apprenticeship system. And then the apprentice, I mean, I mean, come on, if you're a young person and you've got a family to look after or you're a single parent, you're not you're never going to turn down a, a pay raise and when you're confronted with that and going, okay, I either go to school and go on EI, which always sucks, or I stay working and I get a pay raise and I'm, and I'm accumulating hours as I, as I go. Um, But I've I've seen, I've seen, I've seen a a small increase. And again, I don't have numbers to back it up, but I'm willing to say that there's been an increase in the, in the age of apprentices going through the system, right? Where they said, oh yeah, I started my apprenticeship four or five years ago. I'm like, yeah dude, why are you, what, why the gap? And they're like, Oh, I was just too busy working.
1: I'm like, Oh, really? But then they run into issues. Like, and I've had many students, cause I teach second year apprenticeship. So what I'll get oh, is yeah. I've had lots of people who've they're doing like the 20 year apprenticeship model where they yeah. they've work for the same <laughs> yeah. company. And so they've, they're making the same, they're making a journeyman's wage. They, they're running projects, they're running jobs, yeah. but they're a first year apprentice. But the problem is when that company folds, and I've seen this happen more a lot, not a lot, maybe like five or six times. So enough to that it's an issue. When their company folds, what do they do? Because then they've got they've got all these hours in first year, but they're not going to get paid a journeyman rate. They're not going to be able to jump to another company. So we need to start pumping up that this isn't like I don't know. It's, I think it goes back to like what Sally said earlier. It's a stakeholder issue, right? We've got, and it's not just one stakeholder being the government. We've got to talk about industry. We've got to talk about the educators, and we, this is something we always talk about too: is the subject matter experts. There, you get these grizzly old ex foremen that are teaching now of course not this is at an undisclosed location but that are like they they think academics is brutal and like why would that's just stupid school and so they they pump that up and they don't pump the the fact like you said tim that there's programs that they can go on to improve their education or not improve but take next steps and we need to be as educators telling our students that your ticket is just a step in the next step to a career like that to my students all the time i i never thought i'd go into the trades i in fact i specifically said i would never go into the trades (laughs) then i ended up in the trades yeah and then it it parlayed into teaching and then it parlayed into me getting my master's and it's like it's been a a level up for lots of other things but nobody talks about that they talk about you're going to get in the trades and if you're really smart you're going to start your own company and then it ends there we don't talk about all the other options
2: i think that like the bring forward so that so many good points in those last two um, conversations there and one of them is this gap where as educators we haven't been able to fill this like we can hop in and create online courses truly online courses that are intended for apprentices to take while they're still in the workplace So they don't need to be leaving work. If we were to take a second year apprenticeship level, third or fourth, whatever, and we actually squish this down so we flatten it out so it spans over six months instead of six weeks, it's manageable. We design it as, you know, educational designers. We design it so that it is, the learner is able to work through there um, independently, then we can have our apprentices continuing with their lives, continuing in the workplace. And the great thing about that is that now we're always talking about situated learning. You know, this is authentic learning environments. If we allow our apprentices to stay in their industry and continue their education, they're actually, they are, you know, they're not coming into a workshop to perform this task for us to go around and then you know, with their rubric and mark it off, they've got to perform that task in industry. So I'm a, you know, I have no idea what pipe fitters do. So I'm not even going there, but let's pretend you're a welder. So you're out there and you're doing some kind of weld, then you have a GoPro on, you have a GoPro, you record this well, you submit it to your instructor, they provide feedback, you self-reflect. I just see so much potential here for us to really disrupt what apprenticeship looks like and especially apprenticeship education. Um, Why are we making apprentices come back into the classroom and sit there in rows for six weeks to go through all of this when we could offer an alternative to that? So I think 2020, with the help of COVID-19 here, is actually giving us that huge thrust forward that we need to it's disrupting a nice disruption apart from the yeah. covid piece
0: yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna hop in here for just a second chat and and then we'll let you go we'll we'll
2: we'll release
0: <laughs> we'll release the leash and
2: yeah 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 off, off you go. um because
0: you, you make a good point like the work integrated learning i often i often chuckle inside when i see institutions or other programs go hey we're we're diving into work integrated learning and i'm like yeah. We've been doing that for 2000 years. Um, the, the whole thing of living labs too, that, that made me smile and, and kind of laugh inside too. Cause living labs were not like five years ago. They were like this panacea that everyone kind of woke up to and went, Oh, living labs. That, what a brilliant idea. And I'm like, why don't you just come across to the technical and trade side? Cause we've been doing this for 2000 years. Like it's, it's, it's a no brainer to us. We get it. Um, but they said in the article that many people now recognize the value of linking formal schooling and job experience. Like, no kidding. Right? Like we look at, we look at certain community colleges and certain aspects of, of universities and they get it right. That And so much so that they've niched into it. Um, and, and I made a little note here about more university graduates are going to community colleges to acquire technical job skills. So, Here's, here's, here's a scenario. Somebody goes to university, they get a, they get a four year degree, bachelor of arts degree, even a bachelor of science degree now is starting to get some scrutiny and and it's and it's validity in the, in the marketplace. And they're realizing, Oh, I can't, I can't go anywhere with this. I don't, I don't, I can't get a job with this. Well, I guess I'll go to BCIT and go into this program, going to computer science and in two years I'll have a diploma and I'll have a job before I even graduate. And and my wife has always been on the soapbox for a long time because she, she went to school. She got her degree at UBC. She spent an extra year at UBC. She wanted to go into med school. Couldn't get into med school um, for a bunch of different reasons. One, I think because she was a woman, um, but they, wouldn't, they just wouldn't let her in because um, it was it a was time and era where very few women were getting into med school. And, um, and then she, she went to Alberta, couldn't get in there, came back here and just said, okay, I'm just going to go into nursing. Went to BCIT, two-year diploma, graduated with honors. She had a job before she finished. Right. And BCIT became known as the boot camp institution, right? That if you, if you wanted a job now, go to BCIT, get their one or two year program under your belt and boom, you'll be out there working. And it's like, so what's, there's, there's got to be something broken in the system that people are going to go and spend 30 dollars fifty thousand dollars on a, on a bachelor's degree which I'm not disparaging at all I think it's valuable but you need you need to think this through and then they're going to turn around and spend another you know 10 15 grand on a diploma and then they're going to find a job and it's even worse in the states where we find these people have these 50 100000 thousand hundred thousand dollar student loan debts and they're working at subway Right, because their their degree isn't worth the paper that it's written on, but um, it's it's an interesting thing for me because it, it comes to that that term apathy gap, right? And I've I've talked with too many school uh, counselors, and you know bless them because they're doing a great job, right? And and it, and it's an apathy gap because they don't know what they don't know, and because they don't know it, they just go eh, eh, right? And and so until you get them into a room and you go, do you understand that? That a, that a young person, by the time they graduate at 17, by the time they're 21, 22, they could be making $60,000 a year with no student loan debt or very little. And they're like, what? We didn't know you made that. And I'm like, people like when I, before I came here, I was making six figures before I came here out in the field, right? Where are you gonna find that? And, and they're And they were blown away. Right. And they're like, okay. And literally they're like, we got to take this back to where we work. We got to take this back to our school. And they're like huddling and they're like, Ooh, wh- wh- what are we going to do with all this information? Right. And you know, C- the CAF brought, came out with this, uh, this, this table with the medium employment income at certification two years, two years before and at certification. So this was 2010 to 2016, the average, um, yearly wage in, 2016. So four years ago, right. Average was 44.6. That's average. Right. And of course this is national too, right. This is not provincial. So, and then that's two years before certification. So that's a level two. Yeah. If they're, if they're going, you know, four years straight, a level two is making 45 grand a year. Right. You, you tell me what 19, 20 year old is going to go and make 45 grand a year. Oh, they're not. Or they're not, unless they're in a trades. And, and then at the year of certification, they're making 56, six. So 57 at year four. Drop the mic.
2: <laughs> 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 right? And it's, and it's just
0: like, okay, so, it, and they make a good point in the article. Um, this information needs to get out there. People need to know. And that's what I mean by the apathy gap is like, once people have the information, now they can make a more, a better informed decision. Right. And, and I'll just end my little soapbox thing with this, that there, there, and there was a, um, there was a, uh, a high school trades program. Uh, and I won't, I won't mention the high school name just for, you know, to protect the innocent. Um, but I, I, I heard this right from the shop teacher and they get funding because uh, on the number of students that they get in their classroom, because they're an elective, they're not compulsory, they're an elective. And they were they were leading their students through a couple different um, uh, trades, one of them being carpentry. And I think the other one was was metal work or sheet metal or something like that. And they weren't getting students signing up for it like the, nobody was signing up for it. And he was in danger of losing his courses and and if essentially seeing a reduction in his in his time at the school. Right. So he changed one word. He changed, he, he, he took out, you know, trades and put in engineering.
2: I knew it. I knew you were going to say
0: literally that. Literally within weeks, signed up, sold out. Didn't change a spit of what they did in the class. Didn't change an outline. Didn't change an, an outcome. Nothing. Changed the title. One word on the title. And I'm like, come on, really? Like serious? And he goes, no, It. this happened. And so when they saw the word engineering, they put their kid in it because they thought it was best. And I'm like, okay, that's that's bias for sure. But that's that just confirms for me this apathy gap.
1: Okay, I'm done. Ready, go, Jen.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, there is a huge apathy gap. Like we see it all the time, and it's 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 this stigma of trades again. Like, what do we? The thing is, like going back, there's so much to unpack with what you were just saying, Tim. Um, when I went to university it was okay to like go to university and not know what you're going to do and expect to like, Oh yeah. You know, you, you're just going to find yourself. You're going to take those years and really discover who you are, get your degree. And then, you know, then maybe there will be a job out there. Who knows what it's going to be. I don't know what kind of job you're going to get with the bachelors of English literature that I was going for, but eventually there's something out there. I'm sure. <laughs> well, let, let me, let me just interject. Unless you're going to go all the way
0: and get your PhD and go into the system itself and teach that, right. Yeah. It's, it's not worth it
1: but well, that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. it. And I'm not disparaging from academic at all. I think if, no, 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 if no. you know that that's the direction you want to go in, like say everybody want, like a big one back in the day, we always joked was, Oh, I'm going to be a Marine biologist because that was just, you're going to take biology and then kind of go on to that. But you had to have that, that vision to go on and do that. Like I've known people who got degrees in oceanography and then got another degree in biology and then really work hard to go in that route. Right. So intention, but what about those people like myself who are late bloomers and just really didn't know what they wanted to do. I wish that I had fallen into a trade and kind of found myself that way and realized that there is still rigor. There's still academic stuff that happens in that. Cause I prided myself in being, I was a reader and I I was a thinker and like, I loved philosophy and stuff like that, but that wasn't going to get me anywhere. So why not take that and still use that in the trade, which I did, but I I started it at 25 when I could have started it at, 17, 18 years old and then found myself at the end of all that making a hundred thousand dollars a year, right? That mean that medium one, that fifty-seven thousand dollars, that doesn't include overtime. That doesn't include all this other stuff that these students, when they get out of if they're working hard, you can easily make close to a hundred, right? So oh yeah, depending on where you're going and what you're doing. It's not, exactly. it's not hard to make 70, 80. Yeah. So these students of ours that are coming out of high school and figuring this out because their parents have figured it out, then they they've you know, while you while you figure yourself out, why don't you just do a trade because your friend's going to be working at Starbucks, making 15 an hour, you're going to make 15 an hour, but then the next year you're going to make 1750. Then the next year you're going to make 2250. And then by the time you're done, you're going to be 35 an hour. Then if you want to, then you figure out, okay, no, I, I do want to like, look at, look at us. Like Sally's got a doctorate. You've got an MEd in leadership. I've got an MA in, in learning and technology that all came afterwards, right? We, we did our trades And then we fell in love with, like, I fell in love with pedagogy. Salad fell in love with pedagogy. You fell in love with leadership. And then we moved on from that. So I wish, like, I don't regret any of my life, but I I wish that I had taken those years and instead of kind of just taking elective courses on philosophy of religion and all that fun stuff that was good to fun to think about, if I had taken that as an evening course while I was doing a trade, then I, I would have finished my trade at 21 years old and then gone on
2: to do whatever I wanted. I'm so envious that you did that though. So I think it's really interesting that you say this because one of the things is when you are led into, if you have a system that does this academic vocational divide, once you've been, you know, once you've been segregated off into that vocational side, then nobody, you know, is working on your academic side. So you are deprived of English literature, you are deprived of philosophy. And so Uh, you know, for me, you, you spent that time doing this, you know, working on your degree. This is something that it should not be an either or. It should be, yes, I'm going into an apprenticeship, but I am still able to take an elective course. And so that you can take first year electrical and philosophy. I mean, you're in the same university like we look at these regional universities there's five of them now in bc they have full trades programs and full degree masters programs all there on the same place why are we still dividing this up you know if you you can take electives if you're in the academic side but not in the vocational side and so i think yeah, i really i think we're at this stage where you know how many more years are we going to keep reinforcing this old system that is no longer serving us? And I don't think it served us for a long while, but it, it seems to me that there's, there's so many opportunities and coming back to now what we have with educational technology, we do not need to keep the structure of the full walls of a classroom that isn't, we don't need to keep people sitting in classroom five days a week in apprenticeship from, you know, eight till three, we can disrupt that. And at the same time as we disrupt that, we can offer other avenues. Why, why are you not working on your degree at the same time as your apprenticeship?
0: Totally. Well, I I can answer that question because it's just too stinking hard. Right. I mean, you've got life, you've got a family, you're working. Um, and, and now we're talking about stretching out an, an, a, a six or 10 week apprenticeship block to six months. Um, it, it's, I'm not saying not everybody can do it. I, I, there are people who could do it, but there's a, there, I know that there's a, there's an underlying philosophy from students who look at school as a break from work. And and that's one of the reasons why they like the face to face is because they, they feel like they need that time to come and devote that specific amount of time to their studies. Now, I don't know if how deep this goes psychologically and educationally and pedagogically uh, and how far back we go into, you know, the K to 12 system to blame something or to put a label on it. I'm not going to do that. But I know from experience when, I, when I've asked students, "What which model would you rather have? The mass majority have said, oh, I'd rather have face to face. And it's not just because they, they look at it as a break. They look at it as they need the cohort, which is an interesting conversation mm-hmm. as I'm thinking about mm-hmm. what I'm saying now, because I know you're going to come back and go, well, you know, we have a we have a cohort electronically um, and going through a master's degree and, and, you know, we had cohorts. It was all online. that I worked, but, um, so the, the coming to school piece, I, I think is, is, is a, is a, is a big animal to wrestle down because they're, they're used to the system. They feel they need that system. Um, and, and, and they've, and there's some that feel like they're already behind the eight ball when they're in the system, Like They, either they've been told their whole life or maybe they just don't have the, the cognitive ability yet because they haven't bloomed yet. Um, and they're getting killed every time they, they, they do something, academically. And, and that's one reason why they've gone into the trades. Cause how many times have we heard p- students say to us, "Oh, I'm really good with my hands, but with the books, I'm not really that great. Right. And so they, they nail it in a practical, they understand all the concepts. Um, and, but
1: you know, <laughs> I'm painting myself in a corner as I'm saying this, I know that. Um, <laughs> well, I, I got a couple like, just to push back a little bit on that. It, I'm going to use a statement that you were used earlier, Tim, is they don't know what they don't know. Um, the students, have always had face-to-face classrooms up until COVID, basically most of them right, mm-hmm. have been in a phase. They've gone through high school. They've gone through elementary school. Some of them have gone through university and it's always been lecture style. Mm-hmm. So now we've had this opportunity to design these courses with care and if done properly. I think we can shift the paradigm. Now, the reason why I push back a little bit is this week, I always, not I always, I'm starting to interview my students. Like once every month, I'm going to have a sit down conversation with my students. Some of them, these conversations lasted like 45 seconds and it was like pulling teeth to get any information out of them. Some of them I'd had to cut them off after half an hour saying, I got another one coming up. Sorry, we got to go. But so this week I I did 16 interviews over the week, which was exciting and exhausting at the same time. But I asked, what did you think of this model? And I would say, and I I kept notes on this, about half of them said that they thought that it was going to suck and that they weren't going to get anything out of it. And they were surprised that this is a, this, different kind of way of learning is actually working. And then a lot of them, I'd say almost most of them said they really appreciated the new model because it allows them the flexibility to do other things. One guy said, I was able to actually tell my boss that I don't have to quit, that I can work because I am keeping up with the work because I've got the flexibility. He said, I told my boss, I just need to be online for an hour in the morning and an hour at lunch. And that's it. So the way that they they design these things, then they start realizing, okay, it can be done. But the, the problem that we're running into is that it's always been done this way. So what other way is there? So they don't know what they don't know. And I think the institutions are, are not even realizing that yet, that right now we're just looking at this remote learning as it's um, you know, it's just for now and we'll get back to the way it was before, but I don't want it to go back to the way it was before the system wasn't working and yeah, maybe there was some pass rates. And now I see that it's a lot lower than even I thought it was. So we have an opportunity here to do something, but here's the thing that scares me is we talk about it. We think it's a great idea. And the people that we talk to, because we live in an echo chamber, that's just the way life is. We silo with people that we get along with. They agree that it's a good idea, but the stakeholders at these undisclosed universities and institutions <laughs> that we work at, do they get it or do they just want to see, go back to the way it was too? Cause they're the ones that are making the decisions and we push and push and then we can get labeled as this kind of weirdo that does this other stuff. And you know, then it, they just kind of leave you alone. And so what do you do and and tell them, like, how do we make, how do we affect change in all of this? Like real change, like we're, we're changing a little bit in our classes, but at an institutional level, if COVID was a vaccine was found today and we were allowed to go back to school on Monday, I guarantee that our institutions would go back to exactly the way it was. Well, yeah, because it's,
0: because it was easy. It was set up the systems in place and it's been running for a while and it's not perfect, but it's there. They don't, they didn't have to re, they don't have to recreate anything. It's, it's all there. And you know, the experience that you've had with your students is, is not unique to, to your class because I I've taught three business courses, uh, at, for night school. And at the end of uh, two of them have done their, their final exams now. And at the end of their final exams, I have that question in there. So, what, what are you going to take away uh, from your learning experience in this, in this term? And I would say 80 to 90% of them have said almost exactly the same thing that you just said, Chad. I signed up face to face. I was, I was expecting the course to be super boring and very fundamental and uh, and then, but, and then they, they lay out all the stuff that was different and out of their expectation, out of their wheelhouse. And they loved it, loved it so much that they're coming back again in the fall. And so at, at our undisclosed institution, the PTS enrollment has only dropped 2.5%. Right. That's, which is great, which is huge. Yeah. Right. Um, because when you're talking 10,000, 12,000 students per term on PTS, you know, a drop of 10%, that's a huge deal, but a drop of two and a half percent, not that big of a deal. And and it's kind of pushing back the idea that if we go online, we're going to lose our international students. If we go online, we're going to lose our trades and technical students. If we go online, um, we're going to suffer in, in all these different ways. And it's, it's one of those things where I say to myself, no, you're not going to suffer. You have to pivot. You have to learn how to do this because another reason why students are happy chat is because you, you're their instructor, right? And, and you're being proactive in what you're doing. There's a lot of instructors out there who just dump and run. Right. And, and We know that that happens. We knew it was happening in the class. So why would it be any different online for them? And so this is part of that, that systematic um, stakeholder issue that Sally brought up at the beginning of the, of the, of the episode that, you know, an approach and a solution is not just one unifacet answer. It's, it's a multifaceted, it's going to take years to change this. If, if not some of our careers will, will end on, the, the precipice of change happening. And I'm, I'm cool with that. Right. Cause for me, retirement's not until I'm 90. So maybe we will see it before then, but <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's interesting that I wasn't surprised by the completion rates. Like I knew that they were notoriously low um, in, especially in the piping trades because um, and then here's the reason why. And, and And they even talk about it in the article is that some of these trades are heavily affected by resource. Right. So we saw it in Alberta. When, when the oil fields were booming, like there were tons of pipe fitters, steam fitters, there were tons of welders. There, there was, there was so much. I mean, you went up north, Chad. There was so much work. You, you couldn't throw a rock without hitting a a work truck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when that resource begins to dwindle, and unfortunately, tanks. Well, now you got all these people that haven't finished their apprenticeship, right? And they yep. wouldn't, they didn't finish their apprenticeship even when it was booming because it's booming. Why am I, why am I going to walk away from this uh, to go back to school? And I know that some of our students in the oil industry, they would actually lose their job if they went to school, like they would get fired Well, mm-hmm. fired, maybe too strong of a term, but they weren't guaranteed a spot when they, when they were done school. And so you add that to the mix and it's like, well, I, I, I can't risk that. Right. And they, they just wouldn't come to school. And, and the whole Fiat uh, initiative was, was about, making apprenticeship easier for apprentices to move from one province to another and and to not suffer these big gaps in their training experience. Well, that fell flat on its face. I mean, there's only four or five institutions nationally that actually made a good run of it. Saskatchewan Polytech shout out to them. They were one of the ones that did it with four big trades too. Right. Um, So I agree with you. It can be done. It can be. And, and I'm, I'm there with you and, and, I'll I'll die in the trench against the wall. <laughs> I'll I'll, th- I'll throw myself on the on the fire. I, it doesn't matter. Like it's it's going to happen.
2: I think that you know this whole idea of what's being done now and the success. So you're both hearing this success about the online. <clears throat> Excuse me. Platform and the same with the master's cohort that I'm teaching right now. But what they spoke about was their transition, too. So I think, really, Tim, you captured this earlier. You know, we've got the apprenticeship mindset. I'm taking six weeks, eight weeks, or 10 weeks away from work. I'm coming to the classroom. I need to be there. And I think, like, my master's cohort, they felt like that at the beginning of the semester. They were, you know, in this remote learning zone. But here they are at the end of the semester going, we've done it. We've transitioned. We know how to learn in this environment now. And they're really valuing it. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's so many opportunities. And and I do believe, like, you know, Chad was saying, if the vaccine's found tomorrow, we'll all go back into class and we'll set it up the way we did. But it's never, it's, it's no longer has the same established footing to it because we've tried something else. And I think that like, when I developed that hairstylist um, online in collaboration with College of the Rockies and Selkirk as well, there was a lot of pushback. How could you possibly have hairstylists take their second level apprenticeship online? And we've talked about this before, so I'm not gonna go into detail, but the, the level of the work, the quality of the work that was submitted was far higher than what we see in face-to-face. And these students, this was before we used Zoom all the time. So we didn't even have those touch points where we met face-to-face. And so I see so much potential. And and Tim, I think you're right that we maybe we don't want to go all the way and saying, okay, let's make this horizontal. You're just doing three hours a week online. Maybe you need to be in session in a face-to-face session one day a week. You know, maybe we kind of, we look at a blend, but we're going to disrupt everything. And I think that's the big thing because employment will look different. You sure, know, you well, won't have instructors that are teaching, you know, four or five days a week or teaching the same course for five days a week. So there's yeah. lots of disruptions. <laughs> no, I totally
0: agree. And I, I just need to say one more thing because I'm fired up now. Hold on. <laughs>
2: um, I,
0: I, at, at at our, our undisclosed institution, <laughs> we, we run a gas A program. Now, gas A, they have no limitation on what they can work on in, in the fuels. So there's like with a gas B, there's a limitation on, on BTU input. Okay. With a gas A, there's no limitation. The only limitation is they're not allowed to work on propane conversions for vehicles. Okay. And so this, and it's been always dubbed industrial gas fitting because that's where the majority of these guys go in, and girls, the majority of these people, apprentices, they're not even really apprentices. They go and work. Okay. Here's, here's my point. We've been running this program for two decades at least, right? In the last two decades, I would say in the last five years, five, seven years, we've been running two streams of this class, one face-to-face, one online. Okay. And, and I, the pinnacle of this was when they had 90 students in the program. In one program in the term, they had 16 in the class and then they had whatever that was 74, 74 online. So as the synchronous piece was happening and the class was running two times a week, two nights a week for three hours each for seven months, right? Seven months that worked. Now it took, it took four instructors to deal with that. So when people say to me, oh, well, this online stuff is going to ruin our jobs. Mm, nope, no, it's actually the opposite. It'll ruin your job if you're not going to pivot. It will ruin your job if you don't want to embrace tech. At least figure out your stinking email. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you don't know how to do your email, you need to rethink what you're doing. Okay. Like I know email is antiquated even with the younger generation, like, but come on, right? get away from the colored overheads that you use on a transparency. Like that's just get rid of that. <laughs> my point
1: is,
0: <laughs> my point is there's, there's, there's these, these, these students they're online for seven months. They come to campus for two weeks, 10 days. They do their practicals. And at the end of those two weeks, They're released, and some of them still don't write their certification exam for a month afterward. So get this: they're in class for seven months online. They come to they come to the institute for two weeks, and then it's another month before they write. And I'm and I and I would hazard to say, the success rate is not any lower than seventy five percent. Seventy five percent success. A little higher than ten percent. Little higher. Well, I look at the I look at the stats here, right? Because I got them right here. the average completion rates for construction electrician, 55%. The average completion rate for hairstylist, 52%. And just so that you guys can feel better, the the average completion rate for plumber, <clears throat> pardon me, getting all emotional, 45%. <laughs> 45%, people. Because right? Four and a half out of work. 10. Four and a half out of 10, right? Yeah. It's like... Come on, people. Anyway, so my point is, I'm getting tired getting up on down on this box here. (laughs) Point is, it can happen, it can change, it can do, it can be really, it can be done really well. And as a as a as a little as a little another poke in the in the beast, we know that the authority having jurisdiction, and I'm not talking about you know local inspectors, I'm talking about the provincial authority, has been talking about this kind of model for years and has been asking institutions to think about this kind of model for years aka sally right yes. sally can you take a level 2 and put it online for us yes right well, they've please. been ta- and and they've been talking about this for years and there's always been this pushback we can't do it that way we can't do it that way how do you expect us to do it this way how do you-? And now the conversation is okay i guess we can do it this way okay. and so Again, for the third or fourth time, I'm done. Drop the mic. <laughs> but it's it's it, it just it's it's proving itself over and over again that it can work. But there's so many aspects to this. Like it's not going to work if you're just going to dump and run. It's not going to work if you look at you know uh, online education as just you know here's a PDF, read it, and I'll and I'll put a quiz on it uh, next week, right? Or and that's sorry, Jack, go ahead. I'm, I'm
1: gonna no, I was just going to say, that's why I think we have our students. Like I've had students at the beginning, like when I, when we pivoted in March there, we had students drop out of the program because they can't learn online because learning online to them is dumping and running, throwing in PDFs, throwing in this, no interaction. Then we start, I, we start designing, we start talking, we start realizing that online learning needs to have high touch points, right? We have to have access to your students. You have to have a back channel going nonstop right now, as I'm speaking to you, I, I've got my students taking an exam. My Slack channel is open, and they're asking tons of questions. So if you see me look down at my keyboard, <laughs> quickly, that's what's happening. but you've got so to have If you say your name and you don't answer, you're like you're distracted. Yeah. <laughs> and when yeah. I'm looking off to the side here, and yeah. blah, blah. Um, so it can be done. And then that was that came up in my interviews. I thought that I couldn't learn online. This shows me that this is awesome because yeah. what I do yeah. too is they. I have moments like I, not to get onto my soapbox, but no, in you the go. morning. We meet at 8 AM. So from eight till nine, I have, I talk a little bit about what the day is going to look like. I give them a five to 10 question quiz that they work on individually. And then after that I go through the answers so they can ask questions. That's ends around nine, 9:30. from nine till 12 is their time to engage with the work. It's also their time to reach out to me and ask for help. So what happens is I can have one-on-one sessions on zoom. Boom. I'm in there and I'm showing them walking through examples for two minutes bam, they're out. Or if a couple of them want to, we're both in there. So high touch, right? Online, other ones, there's these other students that they just, they love watching the videos. They read the PDFs, they do the quiz and they're done. And they don't have any interaction with me. And I'm okay with that because they're getting nine out of 10 on the on the daily quiz. Then we have an afternoon where I make them get into groups. So whether they're blasting through the program or not, they still have group work that they have to do. So I don't even know where I'm going with all this. Oh, I'm just going with the whole fact that Online is not what they think online is. And we need to get that stigma out too. Online is not, you're working on your own. And then at the end of it, you have a summative exam. It's not that. It's you, online needs to change. And I know a lot of instructors are doing that, but that's not the way it needs to be done. I don't, we need to show from the mountaintops that online is quite engaging. Online can actually be more engaging. I realized the other day that when I'm asking my students, like we go over the answers to these quizzes, Hey, what did you guys get for this answer? And I'd get crickets. And then one, I get the one or two guys that are always answering, which is fine. Then I, then I clued in. I'm like, I'm an idiot. Why don't I use the chat function? Hey, everybody, I don't need you to, if you want to use your voice, but if you want to throw it into the chat, throw in the answers. Then it became a game to them as to who could get the answer up quicker. 16 just going off like crazy in the chats. So then you start realizing that students that wouldn't engage before, wouldn't put up their hands. They're okay chatting. You know why? Because they do it on discord all day with their game anyways. So why don't we give them the tools that they know how to use and give them this opportunity and freedom? So now they're saying, okay, this is completely more engaging than a face to face class. Who knew?
2: Because there's room for everybody's voice in the online classroom. And like you say, I mean, you know, just asking those questions, giving everybody a minute, get it in the chat and you hear everybody's voice. Like there's so many touch points that you've spoken about. And I think it comes full circle to where we left our conversation last week was this is it. Like curriculum designers, we need curriculum designers now to work with the trades faculties. And we need people like ourselves that have developed online courses. We've taught in the trades. And there is, and I mean, this is the great thing about Lucy Griffith coming to join us in a couple of weeks, is that Lucy has just been hired. She has got a trades background. She's been hired specifically as a um, educational designer. Amazing. And they were looking with somebody with a trades background. And I think this is quite unique. And I'd say, you know, all credit to VCC for for doing that. but this is it. It's all about curriculum design in the online environment. And yeah.
0: Let me wrap up by, uh, <laughs> by doing a little audio reading. Uh, this is the end of the article for those that are still with us. <laughs> 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 <clears throat> so a more fully developed apprenticeship system would not be a panacea for all education, job transition problems but it would ensure more effective transitions from school to work for many and reduce underemployment for large numbers of post-secondary graduates. Underemployment meaning they're, 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 they've got a lot of schooling, but they don't they don't fit into a job, right? So they've got a degree or they've got some technical training, but they, they can't find a job to match what they've gone to school for. That's the underemployment thing. Further, they say, we have seen exceptional personal efforts by Canadian young people in recent decades to invest in higher education. They deserve decent jobs to use their achieved qualifications for the good of themselves and society. Canadian employers, labor unions, governments, and the highly educated general public all now increasingly recognize the value of apprenticeships. We've been talking about that for forever, not just on this episode, but forever. Concerted efforts by our governments, employers, and unions are needed now. Let's do it. Right? So that's a shout out to all you people that are listening to us. Help us do this. Help us do this thing. Yeah. and um, we're, we're going to have some great guests in the near future on who are doing some great, amazing things uh, for trades education. And uh, and I like that that um, that switch, Chad, that you mentioned a couple episodes ago. That you're no longer calling it trades training. You're calling it trades education. Yeah. Um, and that's a significant switch because I and I like distinctions. I like definitions. Mm-hmm. It's one reason why I switched calling trades instructors to now faculty because mm-hmm. there's there's a mental shift there. Right. And, and it still catches people off guard. Like they'll talk about the trade instructors. I'm like, no, they're faculty, they're faculty, just like business administration has faculty, just, just like, you know, computer science has faculty. So do trades have faculty. Um, and that's an important distinction. And so we need to do it. Right. We yeah. need to do I'm not gonna ask you to go for the or to go in the let's go for it because I think we've had a, a good
1: 30 minutes of so let's going go for, for it, a, right? A,
2: an hour but, um, and 15 minutes.
1: Yeah. It's actually, <laughs> I just, yeah. I think change and like I I I'm scared that nothing's gonna change, but at the same time, I'm hopeful that it is. And change happens through conversation. So these conversations amongst the three of us are important, but also the people listening, like get involved with this conversation. Please share these conversations. Talk to other people about it, get involved with communities of practice. Don't just be listening. Like we need this system to change. So please get out there. And I know we do have listeners, so please, please help us help us us help you. you Yes. (laughs) Tell us
2: what you need. Well, yeah, we wanted,
1: we want change give us feedback.
0: We, we love to hear the feedback and some people have already and, and there's been small pockets of community of practice kind of pop up and, and they'll continue to grow. Um, but that's one reason why we do this podcast, right? It's not just about standing on a soapbox and telling people what we think it's, it's, it's trying to, it, well, <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but the key word in our title is praxis right? It's, it's not theoretical pedagogy podcast. It's praxis pedagogy podcast. So it's, it's about putting it into practice now. And we come with a trades flavor because we're all tradespeople and that's cool. Um, and we've got lots of people outside the trades environment that listen to us and interact with us. Um, that's cool, right? Mm-hmm. But for those people who are involved in the trades who listen to us, thank you for listening mm-hmm. to us. It's, ma- it's massively important to us that you listen. And like Chad said, Tell everybody about this podcast. It's not for everybody. That's cool. We we get it. Um, but it's got a lot of stuff in it that I think will make you think, and and not just make you think about the theory, but make you think about the practice, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm I'm super excited about what's going to continue on in this podcast as our trades worlds evolve and change continually. Um, we're not going back to the way it was. We can't, and and it won't. It, it's just, it's to me, it's a no brainer. It's just a matter of what's it going to look like at, at in, in the next term. And then the next term after that, I think in five years, we'll look back at this COVID and go, it, it was, it sucked because we know people who got sick and more seriously, we may know of somebody who has passed away because of it, but out of that was a catalyst for change that has been needed for a long time. Oh, and yeah. and there'll, there'll be parts of this COVID that we'll look back on and go, I'm thankful that it happened at the time that it happened because it, it created the the needed change, or it, it brought the environment together. So, having said that, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been uh, this has been a blast again, and um, tons of stuff in here for you. And uh, we we appreciate you listening. Give us feedback. Let us know what you'd like to hear about. If if any of this has sparked some stuff for you that you want to see more soapbox events, that's cool. Um, but uh, let us know what you think. And uh, because some of us, some of you have, and it's been awesome. So I'll I'll stop talking now, but uh, thank you.